Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello and welcome back to Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, our guest is Akhil Patel. Akhil is one of the world's leading experts in economic, financial, and property cycles. He is the director of Property Share Market Economics, editor of Cycles, Trends, and Forecasts, and associate director at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. He specializes in making robust short and long-term market forecasts, including annual stock and commodity market roadmaps and key market turning points. Akil has a professional experience in audit, central government, and international banking, and has worked on a wide range of issues from reviewing large infrastructure, public-private partnerships, to helping establish the UK's $3 billion International Climate Fund. He has two master's degrees, one in finance and public policy, and a first degree in the classics from Oxford. Today, we're speaking to Akil about the 18-year real estate cycle and the historical trends that Akil has been researching and writing and speaking about for years. We'll talk about where we are in the cycle, what we can expect in the coming years, how to position oneself as an investor, as a business owner, the housing market, commercial real estate asset classes, and a lot more information that is very relevant, not only for today, because this is not about market timing, but for an informed investor to know what information to look at, how to put it together, and how to make an assessment to make good investing decisions today as well as for the future. This is a very important conversation and one that I know that you will come back to time and time again. We also include many resources in the show notes that Hakeel has generously offered um, to share with our listeners. Hakeel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Uh, when I was first introduced to you and your work, I got really excited because you were the first person in a really long time that was talking about this 18-year real estate economic cycle, which I had come across in some earlier research of my own when I first started getting into the real estate industry, which I thought was common knowledge, but apparently it wasn't. And so when I was first introduced to you and your incredible research and these webinars and this work that you're doing, I got really excited. And so having you on the podcast is going to be such a, such a treat for, for our listeners. So really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, I would love to get started actually with, with your, not so much your background, cause I've, I've covered that before, but how did you get interested in economics and the real estate cycle? And how did you get to, to this point, especially also speaking specifically about this 18 year um, cycle? Well, it's, it's sort of an interesting story. So I'd never, I've never had any kind of formal economics training. All of this is self-taught. My first degree was in classics. And so I suppose studying history from a very long-term span, I suppose, gives you a sense that there are ups and downs in economic life. But really, the genesis of my interest actually started quite early on when I was at school. And I was introduced to the work of this American economist called Henry George, who wrote a book called Progress and Poverty in 1879. And while you've probably never heard of it, actually, it's probably one of the most read works of economics in history. So even more so than, you know, Samuelson's economics textbook, more so than John Maynard Keynes's general theory, more so than even Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations. And he was essentially analysing why we get boom and bust cycles in what he called the industrial economy, and also why there seems to be 
increasing inequality every time you get one of these cycles. So I sort of came across that when I was a teenager, of course, as most teenagers do, it goes in one ear, it, some, some of it, some residue is left, and, but most of it goes out the other ear. I, I, I sort of resurrected that interest probably around 2005, 2006, just before the global financial crisis, partly because, you know, I thought I wanted to know how to become a better investor. And someone who's, you know, talking about a boom bust cycle, I thought might give me that. And then, of course, we had the global financial crisis, and I had picked up from progress and poverty that actually it's got something to do with real estate. And what I, what I, the conclusion that I came to when reading, you know, the Economist and Financial Times and all these, you know, eminent publications trying to explain what was going on, I, the conclusion I came to is that people didn't really see the kind of historical perspective. And part of that was because my father's business in 2008 was suffering some pretty severe problems, largely down to banks calling in their loans. Uh, and there'd been a period in the early 90s where the same thing had happened. And both episodes had been preceded by a major real estate boom uh, as we got in the 80s and also in the 2000s. And I was saying, well, there's clearly some correlation here, um, but why is no one talking about it? And so that got me into looking into, you know, are there cycles? What do they mean? And crucially, you know, if we were to go through another cycle, how could you take advantage of it? Or how could you manage your affairs that uh, that you wouldn't be severely affected by it? Which, you know, I wanted to help other families go through the problems that uh, my family had been through in, in 2008, 2009. So that's essentially how I got started. Wow. So it was... When your family went went through it, like what are some of the things? How did you get out of it? I, maybe we can just touch on that really briefly because, you know, we always tend to focus on like this happened and like I went through this and then I came out the other side. But what were some of the things that that you learned through that experience that helped you pull all of this research together and just make it through? Because a lot of people. Well, a lot of people suffered, obviously. So I'm just kind of curious from from your personal experience. I mean, it's a good question. So I think how you look at the cycle might depend on whether you're an investor or whether you're a business owner. I mean, Mm. essentially, at the end of each 18-year period, there's a major problem in the banking system. Uh, And the response of private banks to that is to call in loans and stop lending to small and medium-sized enterprises. And, you know, they need they need bank finance for working capital and other needs. I mean, it's not we're not even talking about major capital investments. We're just talking about simple day to day needs for finance. And, you know, if businesses don't have access to that finances when and you, you won't when there's a you know problems in the banking system, then a lot of businesses close or have to severely reduce their size and lay people off. And so I suppose the lesson from that is if you are able to anticipate when we might be getting to the peak of the cycle, a business owner would, you know, build up cash reserves. They would resist the temptation to take advantage of easy credits, which is what you get at the peak of the cycle. You may hold off on major capital investments. You may not expand your workforce quite as much as you're inclined to. Now, there is a cost to that because you will feel that you're losing business and you're not not taking advantage of good times. But that actually tends to help you in the downturn, which follows after the peak. Wow. So that's kind of one of the lessons from, from, a, from a business perspective. I mean, obviously, investors might take different lessons from, from that. Yeah. And to that end, what do you think maybe some of the lessons on the investor side are? Or does it make more sense maybe to like walk us through the whole 18-year cycle and from an investor's perspective, yeah. uh, especially a real estate investor's perspective? Okay, yeah, maybe just by way of background. So it's an overall 18-year cycle. Um, we've called it both the real estate cycle and the economic cycle. I mean, it's it's essentially the economic cycle. Mm. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that other people might use that term slightly differently, but it's driven ultimately by a cycle in real estate. And what tends to happen is at the start of the cycle, real estate prices are very low. There's a lot of problems in the banking system, which the economy is working through. And so the first few years are relatively slow but then you you know you things get back to normal the economy expands people get their confidence back they make investments the economy grows businesses get more profitable uh, and so you tend to have a, a period of expansion that lasts about seven years um seven years in things may have gone a little too far in terms of exuberance and you often get a mid-cycle recession 
lasting a year or two at most. But because the recession at the middle of the cycle hasn't really been preceded by a major boom in real estate, and but the banking system is relatively healthy because it's you know put in place stricter regulations after the last crisis and hasn't you know done anything too bad. The banking system stays resilient, real estate prices stay sort of fairly stable. And that sets the scene for the second seven-year expansion, which is the more bullish expansion. And that's when, because we've got through the mid-cycle, you know, there's more confidence, people have more of a go, credit is more available, that can help push up asset prices, there's much more exuberance, there's euphoria, there's mania. And the final two years is when of that second seven-year expansion is you know, I've called the winner's curse phase. I mean, it's not a term that I made up. And it's where things are really going over the top. And if you think back to, you know, the period after about 2004, when, you know, you could get a mortgage without declaring income, you could borrow any sort of money for your business. And there's all sorts of, you know, shenanigans going on, should we say, in the banking system. Uh, and no one was really checking. And, and, and even if people thought there were problems, no one really cared to do anything about it with everyone was making money. So you get final two blow up two years of blow off into the peak. Uh, and then at some point, things come crashing down. And there's a kind of a, it sort of tends to go in waves, the real estate market slows down, then the, the economy starts to slow down, uh, the stock market picks up on this and then has a major crash that causes banks to, you know, problems in the real estate and problems in the stock market tends to call tends for banks to call in loans, et cetera, which then you know, feeds in on itself, deepens the recession, may become a full-blown crisis. And then that process takes about four years to, to complete, completing a so overall 18-year period. And this has been, so that's really, really interesting. I know you have a lot of research and you have like outlines and, and maybe we can find an image to include in our show notes mm. so that people can yeah. like follow along and, and see it. This historically has always played out. This is what I think is so fascinating because every time we're at any kind of a moment in a cycle, like even right now, I'm thinking about all these things that I'm reading that are like, it's different this time. And this indicator is different than the last time. And like, what if this time is different? Because of course, every, you know, everything changes. So I think what's really fascinating is that it's historically played out. Is that, is that right? Like this cycle that you're talking about is how far back does this go actually? Well, the United States since at least 1800. So it's, it's persisted when the U S was a say, should we say rather backward agrarian economy to mm. through the times when it developed and it was the, the emerging markets of its day to when it became the industrial powerhouse of the early 20th century to the, you know, the highly technologically advanced uh, economy it is today. It's persisted. And the ultimate reason is that while, of course, the, the mode of economic activity is changing from predominantly farming to heavy industry to, you know, technology and services that you have today, fundamentally, it's an economic cycle driven by speculation and real estate, speculation and land. And that, of course, has persisted. Uh, since mm -hmm. the beginning and will always do because because of the way that our economic system is structured okay that's really interesting so where would you say then we are in the cycle today given this you know again very odd last year you know where where are we in this 18-year cycle so we're at the midpoint now, I know that some people would have you believe that we're in the worst crisis since the Great Depression or even worse than the Great Depression. And, you know, you could you could marshal some data to support that only in the sense that if you tell everyone to sit at home uh, and do nothing, you're not going to get very strong economic growth because obviously the number of transactions taking place in the economy reduces. But nonetheless, you know, it's also unusual to go through a recession where the government can sort of effectively clap its hands and say, right, everyone start moving again and things are open. And also it's very unusual in the sense that balance sheets of households have actually improved in aggregate. I mean, I know obviously a lot of households have had very severe problems during the last year or so, but in aggregate, household balance sheets have improved. And so it, it sort of, I think, supports my thesis that I've made, you know, actually for a number of years that the mid-cycle recession is the lesser of the two recessions that you get in within uh, each 
overall 18 years old. It's not to say that it isn't problematic. And if you look to the previous mid-cycle, that was in 2001, so you had a recession and you had 9-11, and it means a lot of issues to do with that. So the, the one in the cycle before that was the early 80s, which actually was a relatively significant recession after the chairman of the Federal Reserve put up interest rates to, you know, short-term interest rates to above 20%. And of course, I mean, no economy can survive that kind of interest rate for very long. And so you had fairly significant recession, but, you know, things moved out of it pretty quickly. And, you know, we had the boom of the 80s. Uh, and so I don't expect anything to play out particularly differently. Of course, we'll have to get through the global pandemic, you know, get vaccinated. There'll be major adjustments for certain industries, because I think one thing that we can say about the the uh, last year or so, it's accelerated technological trends that may have played out over a number of years. It sort of made them play out over a number of months. Uh, and clearly that will benefit some industries and negatively affect others. So so some of that will take a, a number of months or maybe even a couple of years to play out. But that, you know, that's the case with any recession. There's always some kind of change that takes place out of it. And what I think, what I think the mid-cycle will do, and I actually just wrote a piece about this yesterday. Uh, what I think the mid-cycle does within the context of the overall cycles, it changes the narrative. So the narrative between um, the start of the current cycle around 2012, when you know real estate prices bottomed and and things started expanding again, is is roughly there's no one single day when a cycle begins or ends. But around 2012, you know, it was still very much thinking that any time there was any problem, we we're thinking we we're having a return to the financial crisis, and the news was relatively negative for a number of years, and it was only fairly late on in the expansion that it became a bit more positive. I think what the mid-cycle recession store as part of the story this time will do, will it'll move people on. So when we look back in the early 2020s and in the mid-2020s, we will look back to the coronavirus-induced uh, recession, and we'll see that we got through it relatively unscathed. I'm, again, appreciating that some people, that's not the case, but in general. And that means that we won't remember any potential lessons from the boom of the 2000s. And so that enables the cycle to repeat. And so as it relates to kind of where we are today, right? You're in your research, you have this you know, kind of lead economic indicator that that you use uh, to kind of talk about, you know, where we are, how close we are to the peak. Like where where is that number today? And, and could you just kind of give the folks on, on this, uh, listening to this podcast a sense for how that works? Yeah, so actually, I mean, the indicator is for the UK. It seems to work better. For the US, I, I've never been able to get it to work in a way that an economist would be happy with. So I, I don't know what the specific number is for the US because I haven't, I haven't refined the indicator. It's still well off the kind of trigger threshold point for the UK. It's quite hard to use the indicator to say how long it will take to get to that point. It, it doesn't really work like that. You've got to use other sort of, you've got to use historical knowledge and kind of identify where we are and then say, well, if history is to repeat, it's going to take this long. And then you, as you get closer to the time, you will see signs of things going over the top. And they'll be very obvious. Things like, you know, really extravagant behavior is often very good. When when people start announcing the world's tallest building uh, after several years of expansion, when, you know, when it's easier to get a loan than it is to probably buy a, a beer in a pub, <laughs> which certainly seems to be the case at the moment in, in lockdown, you know, um, that those are the sorts of things that are, are a sign that the market is getting way over the top. And that's when, you know, you, you pay a lot of attention to things like my indicator, you pay a lot of attention to a potential inversion of the yield curve. When you get some, you know, big businessmen, hope it's not you guys saying that property prices will never go down again publicly. And, and, and in fact, the coronavirus will be a good example of why they will say that, because and I've seen some stories in Bloomberg about, you know, Vancouver real estate. They're saying, well, we've survived a hundred year pandemic and property prices have not gone down. And, and so, you know, you can see in a, in a very frothy situation that this will be used as evidence that actually, you know, the real estate market is in fairly good shape and is resilient and all that sort of thing. So you kind of build a picture of where we are using a number of different number of different indicators and stories but ultimately you know the the regularity of the cycle is such that 
you know, all you really need to do is know that, you know, real estate prices bottomed in 2011, 2012, add 14 years to that. Uh, and that will give you a pretty good time zone for when you should expect another peak. So as we're approaching that peak, right, and, you know, we think about, you know, I think I, I remember reading in your materials that, you know, the cycles kind of went from 17 at the shortest to 21 years at, at the longest. And so in that moment, you know, leading up to, to a peak, you know, what you're saying is we will see certain behavior, you know, it sounds like you're saying consumer behavior and, you know, government, you know, fiscal policy behavior, that will be an indicator to us that, you know, we are actually approaching the peak. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that any of this is particularly easy and, you know, something will come along to probably make me look a bit stupid when we get towards the peak. I mean, this is what markets do. They, they make the most informed commentators look like they don't know what they're talking about. Um, and now the reason why one of the cycles was 21 years is actually, I think, probably the roaring 20s. So in, 19, in 1920. Um, and what's quite interesting about that is the real estate market did indeed peak 18 years after the previous one in 1926. Uh, but what that ended up doing because the, the stock bull market was so strong that a lot of money came out of real estate and got pulled into the stock market. And so we tend to think of the peak of that cycle as 1929, because that's when uh, the Dow Jones peaked. But actually, from a real estate cycle point of view, it peaked a couple of years earlier. Uh, and then the stock market had a, an additional couple of years. Now, one of the reasons for that was, I believe the US Federal Reserve reduced interest rates in either 1926 or 1927. In fact, two of the strongest years in market history were in 1927 and 1928. And then the other thing is that that was the first cycle after the Federal Reserve had been created. And I think, you know, there'd been a strong bull market. There was the, you know, the heady optimism of the 1920s. There was a sense that you'd created this institution that can actually indeed tame the boom and bust cycle. I suppose that gave, and then interest rates had been reduced. And so the combination of all of those things extended at least the stock market side of the real estate cycle a bit longer. And so you might get something similar. I mean, there is the possibility that, you know, you could see a story that, you know, the government has got us out of the coronavirus, this new era of cooperation, you know, interest rates are low and actually inflation is, is, is relatively stable, which, you know, it could be if there are actually longer term cycles, which suggest that actually inflation may be relatively stable for, for most of the most of this century. So you could see that feeding into a story saying that we know how to manage a boom bust cycle and and people, and, you know, there's a lot of new retail investors involved in, in the markets. And they, as far as we can tell from the last 12 months, seem not to have any sense of valuations whatsoever. So, you know, things just go up and up and up for, for longer than we think possible. And I'll be saying, oh no, the peak should have been in 26 and it actually goes on a bit longer. And then people think, well, you know, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but you know, you will see signs. You'll see signs. I mean, there, there always is something. It's and interesting because, you know, when we were sitting here in 2015, right, we were all having this discussion around, you know, we're two to three years away and, and obviously not, you know, someone like you who's working on this 18 year cycle, but generally speaking in real estate, people are saying, you know, lingering recession is coming. And that pushed a lot of investors into, you know, self-storage into mobile home assets that they thought would perform better or, or had during the, the great recession. And, you know, now that we're getting, you know, I guess, kind of continuing, you know, through it feels like every year we kind of push that out a couple of years or folks in real estate still talk about, hey, you know, two to three years from now, we're still going to see compressing cap rates in, in most real estate asset classes. And, you know, we don't underwrite deals that way, but personally, that seems like, you know, that's kind of the path that we're taking. But then at the same time, you know, as we look at new projects, we see folks you know, making acquisitions at, you know, sub four cap rates on a regular basis. And it just seems very, very low. And so the challenge that I personally have is seeing how we have another five years of this, you know, kind of real estate expansion of sorts. And so, yeah, that's just, just a thought, but, you know, we've been kind of gearing up for this for, for a, full, a few years now, but yeah, trying to figure out what's the, you know, what, what's actually on the horizon. Yeah, look, I can't, I mean, I can't say that, 
you know, it's an 18 year cycle. It doesn't mean that every asset class goes up for 18 years and there's no kind of dip. I mean, clearly money rotates between different sectors, between the stock market, between the bond market. Uh, and within the real estate market, it goes from residential to commercial. And then within commercial, it has different sort of, it's in different locations and different types of commercial real estate. So these things go through, I suppose, their own mini cycles. I wouldn't necessarily, I'd use that term advisedly, but you know, you know what I mean? You know, money goes into one area, things go up, then money goes into another area and things go up and, and goes round and round. Um, to your broader point about how, how long can this go on for? I mean, look, every, if you look at some of the stories from the late nineties, you'll find plenty of them at, you know, when, Real estate was being acquired at cap rates that you that you think are pretty reasonable. You, I'll bet you'll find plenty of stories saying, "Well, this has gone too far. This has gone too far." And I think this is the the reality is is that you know for the first half of the real estate cycle, our, our anchoring is on you know what we think is reasonable based upon historical evidence. And then when you get to the second half of the real estate cycle, because we've seen that actually thing you know cap rates do get compressed and prices do go so high, our anchoring goes up and up and up. And by the end of it, we all think that what we're paying for real estate is actually quite reasonable. And now linked to that is also what alternative yields you get on other assets. And so if we live in a world where, you know, you know, sort of deposits are negative, and you can borrow it sort of close to zero, uh, and so on, you know, that, you know, the spread between that and other the yield and other assets is would look fairly reasonable and people will be prepared to pay uh, more for it. So, you know, there are a lot of different factors and there are few absolutes in, in, in the investing world. So Akil, when it comes to real estate, obviously different asset classes, there's commercial, there's residential. And, you know, as, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the peculiarities of this last or this, the cycle that we're in with, you know, what happened with the pandemic. And we have a stock market that's, I think today it was 72% above the, the, the March lows of last year. And, you know, we have these retail investors, like you said, that have come in. We also have now cryptocurrencies and this whole discussion mm-hmm. around the U S dollar. And as a, as a reserve currency, we have, we have a housing market that boomed and we still have pretty steady certain asset classes in, in real estate. And so there's all these peculiarities that actually speak to exactly what you're saying. And now with this new stimulus and the vaccines, and there's, there's very little talk other than, you know, obviously some contrarians and there always will be that say, you know, we're about to have a bust, but so many bigger signals and behavior are pointing toward an expansionary approach because we're still so deep in this pandemic. And people want to get out of it and people want to expand and explore and travel again. And, and so I'm just kind of making a statement around, like I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking we're ready to celebrate, which is a positive sort of, it's going to be expansionary in, in its Mm -hmm. nature. So, you know, as, as you're speaking to that, to that mid, you know, to that mid cycle Mm -hmm. that, that we're in for real estate investors, right. Cause everything's driven by consumer behavior and, but for real estate investors specifically in the housing market and commercial, how do those differ if at all, or are they correlated in the way that they move in the cycle through the research that you've done? Because as investors, we're thinking, well, what is the asset class that I want to invest in for how long do I want to invest in that asset class? Is it like buy and hold forever? Is it a five-year syndication? So, you know, as it relates to real estate, what are, what are some of those elements? I mean, I'll give you some considerations. I'm not sure that I probably have enough expertise to to be too specific. I mean, historically, the real estate stock, the real estate cycle starts with residential real estate because you know it's at the beginning of each cycle. There's been sort of movement of people and so on. They need housing, and and that tends to initially they start to rent, and that tends to put up push up rents, and then you know that capitalizes into higher prices and so on, and that process might even starts when the economy is either technically in a recession or pretty slow and so on. What that means, though, is that commercial real estate tends to lag residential in the first half of the cycle, not least because that's much more tied to growth in the economy, because obviously that affects how many businesses uh, open and, you know, their sort of needs for space and 
and so on. When you get the second half of the cycle, commercial real estate comes into its own because growth is higher, confidence is higher, businesses are expanding more, they're investing and so on. The demand for space goes on. And indeed, you know, the, the tall building indicator that I spoke about earlier is usually a mag- massive commercial real estate project, that, which is an indication that, you know, things can really go over the top. Uh, and there's, you know, plenty of financiers willing to fund such schemes, which is not the case in the first half of the cycle, because, you know, the banking system is still working through the problems of the last cycle, and then is relatively cautious, and there are probably stricter regulations in place at that point, which tend to get loosened over the course of an 18-year cycle. So that's some of the considerations in terms of commercial versus residential. Sorry, I think there was another point um, you wanted me to address, which I've forgotten. Well, it was maybe, no, this is great. Like the, the, the difference between the two is, you know, we just kind of talked a little bit about the hold, hold period oh, yes, yes. For, for assets. Well, I mean, this is, this is a, it's a tough one. So, you know, I, I'm not a believer in overreacting to the end of a real estate cycle. So it's not the case that you, you, you buy at the start and, and sell at the peak. I mean, you can do that. It's very hard to time the peak. So, so I don't advise you trying to get it to the exact day that the, the cycle will peak because you'll, you'll inevitably be late. Look, if you have an asset, which and so we're talking about real estate here, is in a good location, you don't foresee any fall in demand, you got it at a good price, you're not over leveraged, you can continue to service any loans on it and pay taxes and all the rest of it. I don't see a reason ever to sell it. The the problem that you have in the course of an 18-year cycle is that the cycle starts at the centre, the centre of a city and spreads out to the suburbs, where it starts at the centre of a country and you know, spreads out from primary to secondary to tertiary cities. And the, the business case of, of those investments, I think, gets increasingly thin as you get towards the peak of the cycle. And so you might get some very speculative schemes that people are investing in towards the end. And, you know, you'll find very soon after the peak of the cycle that there is no demand for you know that unit of housing that sorry i'm not sure what the terminology is in america but you know that block of flats we'd say in the uk you thought you know would was just waiting for people to come and occupy it um so in those cases if you're doing you know if you're funding a scheme there i mean you would be very very sensitive i think to the signs of the cycle peaking because you know prices can go from uh, i know i know some of my subscribers were investors in Sunderland, which is a city in the north uh, east of England. And they talk about people paying about £500,000 for a house at the edge of Sunderland in 2007 uh, and being forced to sell it in 2009, 2010 for about 90000 So, I mean, you know, you can get some really significant drop-offs. So you have to be quite careful when you're going to marginal locations, tertiary cities, the business case has to be really, really solid for you to try and ride out the downturn it sounds like in a way almost like basic i would say basic from the perspective of what we do at alpha 2 where you're saying you have to do your research on like longer over overall trends especially if you are going into some of these areas and and markets it's not enough to say well i want to own an apartment building, right? Like flats, like apartment buildings. And I think, you know, like I live in Los Angeles and there are homes in this area called Compton, which I'm sure a lot of people will, will understand They're, you know, they need a lot of work. They're like big fixers and they're selling for five, $600,000 Compton, mm-hmm. like today. And is there, is there really population growth there? Are people going to, like, if you buy that home, you know, who's living there, who's buying it? Are they, are they fixing it up? Like, and that's like on, on the residential side, but it it goes for, you know, the same way with, you know, let's, let's call it like apartment and investing is, you know, these areas need to be looked at in, in detail, not just I'm going to buy a building because it's it's a good time and I need to get into something, which is also happening. I have people reach out and say, oh, there's, I found this like fourplex in Los Angeles and it's like rent controlled and, and it's like, I don't know, like $1.2 million or something silly like that. I'm like, yeah, but you can invest that 1.2 in Nashville in somewhere else. And, yeah. but it's all trend related. Like where's the growth? 
longer term. So to, to me, hearing what you just said, it kind of goes back to basics. And Dan, tell me, you know, you know, if you, if you agree, cause when we're doing our underwriting, it's like, it's like, what are the fundamentals driving the growth? Not just everybody's moving to Nashville, which does turn out to be like the number one city that received all the COVID migration based on, on a report I actually read. I think, I mean, I would sort of add to that just so look, if you, if you spent 1.2 million on a relatively speculative asset at this point in the cycle, you know, you might well get away with it in the sense that you probably can find another mug in a couple of years time to, you know, pay 1.2 million or if indeed if credit is more easily available, then, you know, they might even pay a bit more and they may not pay much more because obviously the fundamentals are, are not strong. What you don't want to be is that person in 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 five years' time who's paid 1.5 million for something which is, you know, which doesn't have a solid evidence behind it. Now, I'd add one further point to that. We're always in, you know, if you read the papers and believe the papers, and you know, and probably a lot of pretty solid real estate publications, we we have a perpetual housing shortage, and you know that. The, the reality is that some of that is based upon assumptions around demographic trends and population growth, which, you know, is influenced by the number of births and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, when you get a speculative mania, people overbuild, you know, like, you know, as if, you know, that no one has any housing anywhere. So, uh, and I think, I mean, what was the statistic from Ireland and from Spain and some of the European countries in 2008 was they had enough housing stock being built for about 20 years or something you know it can really and it, you know and i'm sure that not all of them were totally kind of dumb they probably did some research and and you know thought that there is a housing shortage i mean maybe there wasn't in ireland but you know there, there was a housing shortage but if everyone is building catering to that then you're going to get overbuilding and it's usually apartments uh, which tend to be the things that are overbuilt the most so if you're in a if you're in an area where there's a lot of apartment building going up i would be very cautious at the end of the real estate cycle of course if you're in the same area but you're building you know family homes for medium income earners then actually that's probably not an unreasonable investment because if people are still going to be in that area you know people you know families need space and uh, they, if you're close to schools and other things and there'll be strong demand for that kind of investment. And so that probably will be able to ride out the downturn a lot better. Yeah. That's great advice. It's really good. It's really good to to look into. And it, you know, it speaks to the way that we believe that we should look at things as how investors should look at things. And one thing I wanted to circle back on that, that you said earlier is, you know, it kind of started with your interest in in history and, you know, obviously historical economics and what, you know, are there any other important cycles for people who want to maybe nerd out or, or dig in and, and do some of their own research? What are some of the other cycles that you're looking at specifically, or that you would recommend that somebody wants to get more familiar with that mm-hmm. are worth looking into to help shore up our understanding to make better investment decisions? I mean, so then, I mean, the main one from an investor point of view is the 18 year cycle. The I mean, the other major cycle that I write about is called the Kondratiev or long wave, which is a 55 to 60 year cycle, principally seen in commodity prices, but it's also related to the adoption of technology. It's, even, it's also related actually to, you know, the level of kind of friction within societies and, you know, international politics as well. So you tend to have 25 to 30 years of rising commodity prices, increasing tensions internationally, a lot of turbulence within societies, a lot of technological change, which often causes, you know, that friction because, you know, people lose jobs and, you know, not necessarily skilled for the new economy that's emerging. And then a 25 to 30 year period of kind of falling prices when maybe things are socially a bit calmer, but the recessions on the downside of the, of the long wave tend to be much more significant and much harder to get out of. So we're currently, and, and actually what's interesting about the 2020s is we're in a, one of the periods where you'll have both the peaking of the real estate cycle and the peaking of the long wave simultaneously. So not only, I think, will it be a very bullish period for investors, it'll also be a fairly turbulent one. So I don't expect the news 
to get any easier, which, you know, can often be a bit of a distraction for, for investors. So I think that's something that uh, they could look into. Uh, bear in mind that I read the long way differently to a lot of commentators and they, you know, a lot of them say we're on the downside and we're getting to a deflationary bust and all this kind of stuff. I think, you know, just sort of looking out the window would, at least to my mind, suggest otherwise and reading the news. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, the potential that inflation would be relatively stable for the rest of the century. So there is this thing called the Great Wave, which is about 18 to 100 year cycle in, in inflation. And so you tend to have these what are called price revolutions, which last a century where pro inflation goes up very high. And then you have areas of areas of price equilibria. This is goes back to work by this historian called David Hackett Fisher. And during equilibrium periods, prices tend to be relatively stable for about 80 to 100 years. And so the 20th century was uh, a price revolution. So prices in 1900 were a lot lower than they were in 2000. I suspect if if the pattern is to repeat and it's been going on for at least, you know, 800 years, if that cycle were to repeat, it's not really a cycle, it's more of a wave. If that wave were to repeat, then you'd find relatively stable inflation into the, you know, around 2100 when hopefully they'll have found a cure for for mortality and so we'll still be around to see if I'm proved right or not. Well, it just kind of reminds me because I was just reading this. I follow Ray Dalio's work. I'm, yes. I'm sure you do too. And he's like big into his historical economics. And, yes. and uh, he was saying that one of his like, like kind of like worst moments, I suppose, is like he, he called on like big national television, like the beginning of a huge down cycle right before like the big boom, maybe it was the eighties or something like that. And yeah. so, you know, I know everybody like gets it wrong, which is, which is fine. I mean, nobody truly knows we can only learn so much from history, but I think it's so interesting to look at those trends and at least be informed to make a larger informed decision. Cause like you said, you read the news that's so filtered, especially with algorithms, these days that I think it's really important to know, like, you know, where to look, what else to potentially look for and digest as information to make better decisions. Cause as investors and business owners and everything that we're doing, we're, we're just trying to, to get as far along as, as we can, you know, ultimately it's like a game of survival. Hopefully with, a bit more than that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, but it still feels like that because it's like, you get all this anxiety reading the news. And so it, it does, it mm. triggers that fight or flight to some it degree. Does, yes. And it's like, oh my God, what, what do I do? I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose money. I don't want to, you know, it's like all this other yeah. psychological stuff kind of comes into it mm. that I think can be, you know, if we have that, that anxiety about things, which is normal to have that with some research, with mm. some, you know, some knowledge and information, we can at least make rational decisions. I think, look, so I think that, I mean, I've, I've made a couple of points to that, one about Ray Dalio. But the first point I'd make is that the real estate cycle persists because it it captures something fundamental about the structure of the economy. And I mean, I, not to get too technical about it, but it's it's it was first articulated by this English economist called David Ricardo in the early 19th century. And he formulated this thing called the law of economic rent. And it basically, in, in its simplest form, it means that essentially the, the progress of society and, you know, our societies are enormously progressive. The benefit of that progress ultimately ends up in the price of land. So not real estate land. So the land on which real estate sits. And that makes it a magnet for speculation because as the, you know, as we invest in, in building our economies and putting in train lines and roads and internet and water and all these other things that make our societies, you know, the amazing places that they are, uh, the, the ultimate gain of that is in in, in real estate, in, in land. And and therefore, because you, you know, it's basically an unearned increment uh, and it therefore attracts a lot of speculation, which then goes over the top, which then squeezes the economy, which then brings the economy down. And, and because banks have overlent to real estate, then the banking system comes down and then businesses don't have credit. Uh, and that's why we get the boom bust cycle. This was first set out in the work by Henry George that I mentioned earlier. Now, the reason why this real estate cycle persists is because the structure of the economy has not fundamentally changed despite all of the technological change that we've experienced over the last 250 years. If for some reason we were to change that, then I would be the first person to say then we probably won't get a repeat of the real estate cycle. But until that changes, and in fact, the most well-connected political and financial interests 
in our countries have every incentive to to keep this persisting. And so there's really no reason why the cycle won't persist. Now, that brings me neatly on to Ray Delio. So he's done a fantastic job pulling together all this research and putting it out there. The one thing that he doesn't get is the land. And so the reason why you get massive buildup of debt is because what the banking system ultimately mostly does is lend to people to buy real estate. And as an asset class, it Globally, it's much bigger than the bond markets, much bigger than the stock markets, uh, and so on. And yet, no one really sort of sort of truly understands this. And so, if you analyze, if you take so Ray Dalio's work is, I'd say slightly um, not being. I'm not trying to be facetious here, but I think it's quite complementary to uh, the research that I have put out there. But fundamentally, if you're going to, and he's got you know he's got much better access to data and so on. But fundamentally, you need to understand. The land situation if you want to successfully forecast how economies are going to develop and, and move forward. I love that. Thank you. The land issue. Now, now I'm going to go down a different rabbit hole. Personally, not right now, because uh, I know that we're we're running out of time. But no, that that's that's really it's really important. Thank you. I guess like is the just the one last thing is that tenet of because you know like nobody's making more land. Is that part of it because I know plenty of people that have bought land and they can't do anything with it because maybe they bought in like the wrong spot or you know like is it is it that it's probably not that but what is what is it about land or is it really just that people are borrowing money to buy real estate on land as you said no it's 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 a bit of both so I mean ultimately you know location matters so, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we're all in, you know, we can work remotely and so on, we still need to be in certain places and we tend to cluster mm. together, you know, partly because, you know, economic activity is more efficient that way. And there's only so much land in certain locations. And so whoever, you know, owns that piece of land has monopoly pricing power. And so you get basically all of the fruit of progress. So as the economy comes more productive and you can get more out of a particular site, what ultimately takes all of that is the rent that you pay to whoever owns the land. It might be yourself, but then you're taking more of the product as rent as opposed to business profits or, or wages if you're an employee. And so, yes, it's linked to the fact that land is ultimately scarce, but it's because it's locational. I mean, United States has virtually unlimited land, mm-hmm. but you know, you can't, you could go to the middle of Wyoming and buy as big a piece as you actually made. Wyoming is quite expensive now, but you know, Ultimately, you know, the really valuable stuff is in and around primary and secondary and tertiary cities. And then, yes, the banking system then comes on on top of that and and makes adds fuel to the fire, as it were. Right. Oh, amazing. Thank you for that. That's really clarifying. So one one last thing I wanted to ask you about, I know we've talked about this, if you want to, is tell us about this book that you're that you're writing, what motivated you to write the book and, you know, you know, why you feel it's so important to, to write a book at this time about this topic? Well, so, I mean, as you know, because you you came across the 18 year cycle well before you met me. So there are other people who have written about it. So what I will try to do in the book is basically distill all of that sort of insight. So, you know, what's the cycle? How many stages does it have? What happens at each stage? You know, what's the historical evidence? You know, I won't repeat what other people have written, but I will try and distill some of that. I think the advantage that I will provide to the reader of my book that maybe they won't uh, find elsewhere is for each stage of the cycle, I'll say here are the sorts of things that you should be looking out for based upon my reading of history. And as an investor or a business owner, this is what you should be doing about it to take advantage of the expansions and make sure that you're protected during the downturns uh, of each cycle. So that's essentially what uh, I'm going to do. And the reason I did it was I circle back to what I said at the start. So when I, you know, when my family's business was experiencing problems in 2009-10, I made it my mission to try and develop a body of knowledge such that we would be prepared and other families would be prepared for the next time we had a crisis. And so this is the kind of resolution of that, hopefully the resolution of that mission. Great. Well, is that going to be a 2021 release? Do you think? I certainly hope so. All right. It's, it's a good time. <laughs> when we're in the middle of the recession, it's actually a good time to be 
to be releasing something saying that, you know, we're going to have the biggest boom of all time possibly uh, in front of us. Firstly, because it sounds contrarian. So hopefully it garners a few headlines, but also as I hope and I think I, I'll be right, I'll be able to say in a few years time that I told you so. <laughs> well, I look I look forward to to when that when that book is out and we'll we'll have you on again when when it does come out. So last question, which is something that we ask everyone, what is real wealth? to you? What what does wealth mean in your life? Well, I think, you know, the lesson from from the last 12 months, you can have you can have all the material goods that you could possibly conceive of. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a very wealthy man, but I'm comfortable. But really what it is, is health and 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 very importantly, as I live alone, uh, social connection. So having a strong network of friends and people that you can you can share sort of your life with, whether it's virtually or walking around a park or, you know, hopefully one day sitting in a restaurant or something. That's, I think, for me, wealth. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for... Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge and, and experience. And I've learned so much and we have all these notes. And so we'll have links. I'm going to link to the new piece that you said you wrote and, and some of the other links that, that you've put in there. Aside from that, tell us where, where people can find you if they want to connect with you. What's the best way to do that? Probably via the website of the business that I run with uh, a good friend of mine, Phil Anderson, who's also, also written a book. And I'll just do a quick plug for his book. Yeah. It's called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. Uh, and actually, he sets out the history of the real estate cycle in the US since 1800. So that's a pretty important book. It's very influential on my own thinking, of course. And we run a business called Property Share Market Economics. So www.propertysharemarket, all one word economics sorry property share market economics.com and you can also find me on twitter akil g patel and on linkedin wonderful perfect well i'm sure a lot of people will will come and find you and they'll have a lot more a lot more questions for you so akil again thank you so much for your time today for being so generous with your knowledge and you know we'll, we'll have you back on when you have your book out so thanks so much for for everything oh thank you for having me Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.